Next week we will return to our study in John 17, our Lord's High Priestly Prayer. But this morning I would ask you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Open your Bibles to Romans, the first chapter. And I want to read for you beginning with verse 16, verse 16, and then read through the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 1 and verse 16. Apostle Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, also to the Greek For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind, to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. 
look to the Lord in prayer. Father, it is a uh, it is a clear, stunning, and troubling passage of Scripture to which we turn this morning. So I pray that you would help us to handle properly your word of truth and not to go beyond it and not to deny what it says. Father, to you, may all glory, honor, and praise be given. Father, be merciful to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. If you set dominoes on end and place them one behind the other, you know, an inch or so apart, and then you, you lightly tap the first domino, you, you know what's going to happen. One by one, all the dominoes are going to fall. And it's just a bunch of innocent fun. But there's nothing innocent or fun about the toppling of dominoes that takes place when a culture denies their creator and rejects the teaching of his word so that one by one his holy standards topple to the ground. In Romans 1, verses 19 and 20, if you look there, in Romans 1, 19 and 20, we're told that all people, I mean, boldly told, that all people know that God exists. They know His eternal power. They know His divine nature because those things have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. As, as John read this morning in, in Psalm 97, the heavens proclaim His righteousness and all the peoples, plural, peoples, not just Israel, all the peoples, plural, they see His glory. All people know that God exists. And Paul will go on in Romans 2.15 to tell us that the law of God is written upon the hearts of everyone. But here in Romans chapter 1, verse 18, the dominoes begin to fall. The first domino is tapped by the finger of a culture which chooses to suppress the truth about who God is, that He is the law giver, that He is the creator, that He is the Savior, that He is the one who teaches us how we should live. They suppress the truth about God. The first domino is tapped, and as a result, as that first domino topples, the, the second domino falls. In verses 21 through 23, for once a culture suppresses the truth about God, instead of worshiping Him, who do they worship? Instead of worshiping Him, they've denied Him. That domino has fallen. Now the second domino falls. 
The second domino is that instead of worshiping him, they worship themselves. They worship gods of their own making. And the, and the toppling of that second domino, it leads in verses 24 and 25 to the toppling of the third domino. Because now we're told that, that God, and we're told this three times in this passage, we're told that God gives them up. He gives them up. He gives up the people who think themselves wise in their own eyes. He gives them up to their desperate pursuit of pleasure. So that in verses 25 through 27, the fourth domino begins to topple. The fourth domino falls as a result of the fact that in God having, in God having given them up, to dishonorable passions. Women and men, verse 26, women and men exchange natural relations for those contrary to nature. And they become shamelessly consumed with passion for members of their own sex. And then in verse 27, the fifth domino topples. For God, we're told, we're told now for a third time, a third time, we're told that God gives them up so that they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. I can't tell you the number of books I've read who which desperately attempt to explain away the obvious, clear, undeniable teaching of this passage of Scripture. I would be so simple as to say to you, it means what you can clearly see it means. I don't think it requires a great deal of explanation. But now let's step back. Let's step back and let's remember. In the beginning, in Genesis 2, verses 24 and 25, the Lord defines marriage. The Lord, at creation, in Eden, before the fall, He defines marriage. He defines marriage as as that union that takes place between one man and one woman. It's right there. It's set into place. And it seems rather clear that throughout the Old Testament, the vast majority of people understood that to be God's pattern, to be God's decree. And certainly by the time we come into the New Testament, it is made absolutely clear that this is what God has declared. One man, one woman, that is what defines marriage. But sadly, we have to acknowledge, we have to admit that even in the Old Testament, even among those that we would call the saints, there were those who ignored God's decree, and they suffered the consequences. I mean, for example, some who held high offices of authority and prestige were polygamists, had more than one wife, and as a consequence, 
Have you read your Old Testament? As a consequence, their families were horribly dysfunctional. Families like Jacob's or like David's or like Solomon's. It was a disaster. In the Old Testament, we were told of those who were fornicators and adulterers. And of course, stunningly, once more, David is the prime example of a man whose adultery just leaves his family in utter turmoil. In the Old Testament, there are those who shamelessly pursue homosexual relations. Of course, the most blatant example are the men of Sodom in Genesis chapter 19. Go back a chapter. In chapter 18, the the Lord tells Abraham, I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. I'm going to destroy these two cities, he says, in verse 20 of Genesis 18, because their sin is very grave. And and the reason the Lord is telling Abraham what he's going to do to Sodom is because Abraham's nephew Lot lives in Sodom. And that's why at the end of Genesis 18, you you hear Abraham pleading with God to to be merciful. And I think it is in response and going even beyond Abraham's plea that the Lord does send two angels to warn Lot and his family to flee from Sodom. But to the men of Sodom, these two angels appeared to be simply men. And so knowing that these two men have come to visit in Lot's home, they they surround Lot's house, and they demand that Lot send out his guest so that they may know them. As we've seen in the Old Testament, The word no often refers to two people being sexually intimate. Men of Sodom want to know Lot's guests. They want to be physically intimate with them. And of course, then you have this horrible moment, just horrible, where Lot, I mean, he knows the homosexual lifestyle of his neighbors. So what does Lot, what does Lot do? I mean, it's just, as a father of three daughters, it's just beyond my comprehension. Lot offers to the men of Sodom his two virgin daughters in place of his two visitors. That, that's, just, that, that's, just, that's just almost too horrible to even imagine. There's, there's obviously no justification, no excuse for what Lot does. But it does, it does expose the shamelessness of the men of Sodom. Because they're not interested in Lot's virgin daughters. They want the two men visiting in Lot's house. So now here we are. It's 2015, and we are part of a culture in which the dominoes are toppling. Scripture teaches that we all know that God exists, and yet that first domino has fallen because most 
are no longer willing to acknowledge the one true God. As a consequence, the second domino topples. For many, instead of now looking to the Lord for guidance, they ignore Him, and instead they have become wise in their own eyes. And so the third domino has fallen. And we are a culture who worship the God of sensuality. The most recent movie to enter the cinema that has attracted the largest crowds over the past many days is absolutely a vile and filthy motion picture. And we flock to see it. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't try to find out. But it's there. It's such a blatant example. Such a blatant example. We now worship the God of sensuality. Fornication is an acceptable lifestyle. Oh, we may, you know, we may raise our eyebrow a bit to acts of adultery, but very few would expect adulterers to do as David did in Psalm 51 when he cries out to God, it is against you. You only have I sinned. You, I have done what is evil in your sight. Imagine asking an adulterer to offer up that prayer to God. It would, they would have no idea what you were talking about. So a fourth domino topples. So that over the last 40 years... So that those of you, you know, 40 years old and younger, you may not even remember a day when things were different because it's been over the last 40 years that our culture, in its wisdom, has decided that homosexuality is an acceptable lifestyle. And of course, now the fifth domino is toppling. For many of our political and judicial leaders have decreed that two men or two women should be free to marry. And furthermore, the vast majority of our culture would at this moment judge me to be narrow-minded, to be bigoted, and to be hateful, to even suggest that there's something wrong with homosexuality as a lifestyle, to suggest that perhaps it is even, in fact, a sin against God. But now, before we become too haughty, too proud. We have to sadly admit that perhaps part of the reason why they would consider what I am saying this morning to be hateful is because far too often our speech is hateful. Homosexuality we, we think about homosexuality, for many of us, it just gives us the, it allows us, 
you know, it, it allows us to feel proud. You know, to be able to say, well, at least I'm not guilty of that sin. At least I'm not one of them, those nasty homosexuals. I mean, thank God I'm a better person than they are. How dare we? How dare we? How dare we be so arrogant and so ignorant of the teaching of Holy Scripture? Look again at Romans 1, 28 through 32. Look at Romans 1, 28 through 32. Not the verses before it. Look at Romans 1, 28 through 32. Once more, God we're told that God gave them up because of their debased mind. And then in verses 29 through 32, Paul lists for us some of the sins of a people who are wise. Here, here are the sins of a people who are wise in their own eyes. And I hope you'll find Paul's list humbling. Paul writes that those who aren't thinking God's thoughts after him they are a people characterized by unrighteousness, by evil, by covetousness, by malice, by envy, by murder, by strife, by deceit, by maliciousness. They are gossips. They are slanderers. They are haters of God. They are insolent. They are haughty. They are boastful. They are inventors of evil. They are disobedient to parents. They are foolish. They are faithless. They are heartless. They are ruthless. And furthermore, Paul writes in verse 32 that those who practice such things deserve to die. Now, all of us, every last one of us, are at one time or another characterized by one or more of the things that Paul lists here in these verses. But by God's grace, and only by God's grace, only by grace through faith in Jesus Christ as Savior, Lord, and King, only because of His mercy and His grace and His empowering strength is it true that we do not practice, repeatedly do these things. We may find ourselves at times, I shouldn't say that, we will find ourselves at times, we often find ourselves at times wallowing in the mud. But by God's grace... He won't, allow, he won't allow us to remain mired in the muck. By God's grace, 
Our eyes are opened, our hearts are stung, and we, we cry out to God, confessing our sins and repenting of our waywardness and, and amazingly knowing we are forgiven. And then by His enabling and empowering grace, we, we eagerly recommit ourselves to be free of, of words and attitudes and, and deeds that, that dishonor Him and harm others. And eagerly, we once more strive in His strength to live lives that, that honor Him and bless others. And that's all because of God's grace. And the reason we need God's grace is because going back to these verses at the end of Romans 1, we know that at times some of those things that Paul has listed characterize who we are and what we say and our attitudes and our actions. But by God's grace, He forgives, He restores, and He delivers us once more. To Him, to Him, to Him, be all glory, honor, and praise. Because it's only by God's grace that you get up out of the mud. Clean yourself off. And begin again. Such grace, such forgiveness, such strength, such grace, such forgiveness, such strength is also available to those who find themselves wrestling with same-sex attraction. Homosexual acts are sin. So is fornication. So is adultery. Homosexual acts are sin. But all sin can be forgiven. Look at 1 Corinthians 6. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Here Paul writes, as he, he's writing to the church, uh, to the believers there in Corinth, he writes, Paul writes, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9, that neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he writes in verse 11, and in verse 11 he tells the Christians of Corinth, and such were some of you. I, I don't think 
I, I think that's meant to include everything in the list he just gave. And such were some of you, but but you were washed. You got up out of the mud. God pulled you up out of the mud. He washed you. He cleansed you. You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Wow. Let me tell you, I I can identify with many of the sins. I mean, I have to tell you this honestly. I can identify with many of the sins that Paul lists in Romans 1 and in 1 Corinthians 6, but I have no, I have no sense of the temptation one must battle when they find themselves attracted to a member of their own sex. I also have, I have no, no sense, no understanding of the temptation that one has when if he takes, if he drinks one bottle of beer, he has to have five or six more. I have no understanding of that either. And there are all kinds of sins out there that I don't have any sense of. I'm pretty proud of that. If I am, I'm an idiot. Many of you know my sins, and you know my sins well. And some of the sins with which I wrestle, you probably don't wrestle at all. But it's a big list. It's a big list. And, 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 so, and so, all right, admittedly, I admit freely, I have no understanding of the temptation the temptation attached to being attracted to someone of your own sex. I know everything about the temptation, about being illicitly attracted to a member of the opposite sex. I think some of you do too. At least one or two of you here this morning. So, let me tell you what else I don't know. There's a lot of things. It's a long list. Let me tell you what else I don't know. And I've done a lot of reading. And you, you guys know me. You know when I tell you that, I have. I don't know if same-sex attraction is, part of a, is, is in part the consequence of a gene or it's the consequence of of environment, or it's a combination of both of those things, or whether it's simply something that has arisen out of what was in the beginning just mindless curiosity. I don't know the answers to any of that. And from the material I read, I don't think a lot of people do. But let me tell you, there are three things I do know. I know what it means to be forgiven. I know what it means to be forgiven. I 
And I know. I know that I am not to spend my days ranting and raving against homosexuality while at the same time ignoring my own sin. We love to point to the biggies so we can ignore all that eats away at our soul. I know I'm not to rant and rave against homosexuality while ignoring my own sin. And thirdly, I know, I know that I am to love and be concerned for and be compassionate towards and pray for those who wrestle with same-sex attraction. The dominoes have fallen, and they will continue to fall. And sometimes I despair over whether or not they can ever be put back into place. But this I know, this I know, as the dominoes topple all around us, we must continue to speak the truth in love. We must continue to speak the truth in love. If you cannot lovingly speak the truth, then don't corrupt the truth by speaking it. We can lovingly speak the truth. We can speak the truth in love. Far too often, and you know that if, if you don't know that this is true, then I don't know then you're just far better than me. Far too often we use God's truth as a whip with which to unlovingly scar another because somehow or other their scars make us feel healthier. Far too often we, we find... we find smug pleasure. We, we find... We find it amusing to speak harshly about those about them about those gays, those lesbians. And far too often Far too often, we are unwilling to love them as Christ loved us. As Christ loved us when? We're unwilling to love them as Christ loved us when what? When we were still sinners when we were still the ungodly.
practice of homosexual, that the practice of a homosexual lifestyle is sin. But one who wrestles with same-sex attraction is not my enemy. He or she is a man or a woman created in the image of God. Same-sex marriages transgress God's definition of marriage. It is wrong. It is sinful. But I know about sin. I know about sin. I know what it means to deliberately transgress God's law. I know about that. I know what it is time to be envious or foolish or faithless or heartless. Don't you? It's all part of the same list. It's all part of the same list. But I also know how graciously the Lord has dealt with me. And I know that He can also graciously come beside one wrestling with same-sex attraction. And the way He comes beside them is through you and me. And therefore, as, as we have opportunity, as the opportunity arises, we are to be kind and we are to be compassionate towards those who struggle with same-sex attraction. We are to lovingly speak to them God's truth and we are to do that out of love for the Lord, but out of love for them so that they, like, like you, like me, so that they may know that God can and will empower, equip, and enable them to know their Creator and to live as He would have them to live. And therefore, it should be our prayer. It should be our prayer that by God's grace, that by God's mercy, perhaps through you, perhaps through me, they might come to know the Lord and therefore to understand and to believe that a godly life, a life Honoring to God is the best of all possible lives. Let's pray. So, Father, teach us, instruct us, Forgive us. Forgive us for our pride. Father, give us genuine humility and compassion for those who struggle, for those who give in to a temptation, to a sin that perhaps many of us know nothing about and can't even begin to understand.
Obviously, Lord. Paul knew that there were those at Corinth guilty of such sin. But he also knew that by God's grace they were cleansed, they were delivered, they were restored, they were justified, they were sanctified. Father, pour out your Spirit. Oh God, I beg you. I beg you, oh God, be merciful to us and do not treat us as a people. Do not treat us as a culture. Do not treat us as a nation as we deserve. Pour out your Spirit and accomplish that which we have which we have little earthly hope or expectation can ever take place. And that is our nation having its eyes opened to who you are, to what you have done, and to the glory and to the goodness of how you would have us to live. Be merciful to us, O God, we pray. In Christ's name, amen.